saw his networks drop Oh, we poured a glass of vino Because Chuck Yates needs a job Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. It was a couple of weeks ago, September 22nd, 2021, that I was honored to be the luncheon speaker at the Lafayette Geologic Society. That said, I did not know that Lafayette, Louisiana had a geological society, nor did I know they had a petroleum club, but they had both, and both were in rare form that day, as I might add. Uh, I hope you enjoy the speech I gave. Some really good Q&A at the end of it. And yes, I did get a ticket driving through the town of Welsh in Jefferson Davis. Officer Stevens did not appreciate the fact I was doing 94 miles per hour in a 65. But that's for another day. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Well, I really appreciate you guys having, uh, having me here. I really do. I say that with all sincerity. And I promise I am saying this with all sincerity too. It is so nice to actually speak to an audience that has a bunch of old farts in it. This is like, this is so cool. Uh, because when I left Kane, I go to Digital Wildcatters. I start doing this podcast. The two founders at Digital Wildcatters are both 30 years old. So it has interesting dynamics when you start officing there. You walk into the refrigerator, you expect water. Diet Coke. It's all full of beer. No, it's all full of beer, seltzers, all this, which is crazy. Number one. Number two, quarterly taxes were due, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So I'm walking around the office. I go, hey, where's a printer? I need to print out my form to send in my quarterly taxes. And they said, we don't have a printer. There's not a printer in the office. And I said, well, how do you send in your quarterly taxes? And they're like, well, we just don't. So <laughs> it's good to see gray hair. You might actually get a reference that I, uh, I bring up. So I was driving over here and I was trying to think of the last time I was in Lafayette. And I think the last time I actually stopped and spent time in Lafayette was my freshman year in college. So I went to Rice, as, as, as was said. And I came over here and we played, is it UL? Is that what it's called these days? We were a little snide and called it U-la-la when we came over. But we came over, we went to the Raging Cajun Stadium, and I believe Brian Mitchell was your quarterback. He ran the option. He rushed for 4,862 yards, 47 touchdowns, and just destroyed Rice. But being a college freshman, I discovered a place, and I want to know, if it, is it still here? The Strip? The Strip is still here? Okay. It was kind of, okay. But you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it, to a 19-year-old kid, this was Mecca. I walked in, and there are like all these bars in a row, right? And so anyway, I'm having a good time. I'm seeing debauchery I've never seen before. Growing up somewhat shel- sheltered in a small Texas town. So anyway, I'm doing this, all was good until I decided to walk across the street to go to another bar. I, I wind up getting arrested. And I asked the police officer, I'm like, hey, what did I do? What are the charges? And the police officer said, you brought a glass into the street. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. In a 30-foot radius around me, we have prostitution going on over here. We have illicit drug use going on. There's a 12-year-old shotgunning a beer. I'm pretty sure that's against the law. And I kid you not, the police officer tells me, oh, none of those folks are hurting anybody. If you drop that glass, somebody could cut their foot. Kid you not, I spent the night in jail, charged with carrying a glass. So I wake up the next morning, And my best friend who was on the trip with me is asleep on my shoulder. And so I'm like, whoa. I wake Deke up and uh, Deke immediately looks at me and goes, dude, that was fun, wasn't it? (laughs) And I go, Deke, how did you get here? I know how I got here. How did you get here? He goes, I don't know. I go, it gets a little hazy. So we, we get out of jail. We get Deke's police report. And I kid you not. 
the police arrested Deke riding a bike down I-10. <laughs> oh, it gets better. So when they ask Deke the question, the police, when they pull him over, what in God's name are you doing riding a bike on I-10? He said, dude, I missed my exit. <laughs> and then all the way, all of the way to the police station in the back of the car, Deke kept protesting. But officer, I was in the slow lane. <laughs> that is on, that's somewhere in Lafayette at the police department. That is on a police department. So, back. I don't know what it is about Louisiana. On the way over here, I had a visit with Officer Stevenson in the town of Welsh in Jefferson Davis. She did not appreciate 94 and a 70. So I will be dealing with the law again. So somebody sent an email. Hey, Chuck, why don't, I think it was Wayne. Wayne Cook said, hey, why don't you come over and speak to us? I was like, good guy. Why would y'all want to listen to me speak? And he said, no, we really wouldn't. I said, okay, great. What do you want me to talk about? And he sent about 47 different things. And I think if we sort of boiled it down, it's basically money. Why don't we have any money? What happened to all the money we used to have? It was all some variation of that theme. So I'm gonna talk money, but let's do this, just logistics for the good of the order. If I say something and, and you didn't understand it, misspoke. Hey, raise your hand, ask a question as we're going along. You disagree, you can boo at me, hiss, whatever. You agree, and amen wouldn't be bad. Kind of help my confidence a little bit. Let's start talking about money. And I'll just cut to the chase. The reason we don't have any money today, and I don't think y'all needed me to come to Houston or come from Houston to say this, because we all know this in our hearts of heart about this. We just burned a bunch of capital and destroyed it, right? I mean, if we look back across all of our careers, I mean, we were horrible. We're the worst stewards of capital there is. We overpay for acquisitions. We drill wells we shouldn't have, that we know we shouldn't have. I love to be derogatory towards accountants. You know, they're quaint little folks and I love to make fun of them. But quite frankly, the language they came up with to describe business and this whole concept of net income, if you don't generate net income, you're running a really crappy business. You just are. The accountants got this right. And so we never generated any net income during our, our whole lives and, uh, and all that. We all know that. Do you know why we got, got away with that for all those years? I never really understood, you know, are we that charming that we could go raise money? It wasn't the whole kind of lottery ticket of, oh, we're going to hit a big well and all that. I actually did some research after getting fired, talked to a lot of people. It turns out the whole reason we were able to incinerate all this capital and we continued to get more capital. And uh, does anybody remember Bucky Brock by any chance? Bucky Brock ran a company over in New Orleans for years, Brock Exploration, and I actually helped sell that company. That was one of the last deals I worked on at, at uh, Stevens. Bucky was out raising money in Washington, D.C. in the mid-70s, and a lady in the back of the room said, Mr. Brock, Mr. Brock, is this risky? And Bucky was the on, most honest guy on the planet, and he said, yes, ma'am, that's why I want to do it with your money and not my money. <laughs> but the reason you know so i thought you know oh we're so charming it's the get rich quick on a on drilling a wildcat well or whatever this is why these people give us all this money no the reason people gave us all that money for so many years was something could happen that had nothing to do with any of us in the room the saudis could decide to embargo and oil prices would triple a bomb goes off in the Middle East or whatever, oil prices would triple. There was a really, really cold winter and all of a sudden natural gas prices spiked. There was a run in the commodity that could happen due to macro forces that no one could predict that all investors at least had to have some exposure to because in general, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but in general, if oil prices skyrocketed, usually the rest of the economy went into the tank. So that's why we had access to all this capital. So all of the smart things we thought we were doing, buying PDP at PV10 and 
drilling puds, trying to make PV25, none of that really mattered. Our capital was there because people wanted exposure to the volatility of the commodity. So let's table that for just a second. So then we roll into kind of the mid 2000s, right? And we have the shale revolution. We figure out drilling horizontally, we figure out fracking, we can get natural gas out of the ground and we can get a lot of it out of the ground. At that point, we had a pretty amazing story for Alpha. No longer is it just, hey, we're a commodity bet, whatever commodity does. It's like, holy cow, we can do something that's really cool. And, you know, if you think about it, everything that starts off with, hey, this is really cool, turns into a bubble, right? The internet, man, this is really cool. I don't have to go to that CD store anymore in the trench coat to get my pornography. I can just watch it right at home. This is really cool, right? And it turns into a bubble and we all saw what happened. Pets.com at one point, I think was worth $44 billion. I love Fido, but come on. Turns into a bubble, capital destroyed, gone. We have that same alpha story kind of in the mid 2000s where this is really cool, horizontal drilling, Aubrey McClendon comes out and shows these great results on these wells. So in effect, we turn into a bubble. Shale turns into a bubble at that point. And you know what? All the academics have studied all the bubbles in history, right? There have been bubbles forever. There were tulips back in the uh, uh, 1600s. There was a railroad bubble in England back in the mid-1800s. 90% of all the railroad tracks in England today were laid in the 1850s. Um, at one point, someone calculated in the mid-1800s in England for all of these projects to just get their money back, not earn a return, not make money, just get their money back. Everyone living on that island had to ride a railroad 22 hours a day. It's reported that one of the Rothschilds actually said during the railroad bubble, said there are three paths to ruin in this world, wine, women, and engineers. <laughs> the first two are more fun, but the last one's the most certain. <laughs> I really thought the engineering joke would kill at the Geological <laughs> Society. Come on, guys. <laughs> so... So we have this bubble and the defining characteristic of a bubble, because we've had all this academic study on it, is literally people buy something because they believe it's going up. That, that's it. That's what defines a bubble. They've also spent all this time, energy and effort trying to figure out what bursts the bubble, right? Because we can figure that out. We generally are pretty good about knowing when we're in a bubble, but we're not good at knowing when it ends. They've studied this. All the academics, all the bright folks at Harvard, et cetera, studied it. Literally, all they've been able to figure out is things go down when people start selling. It's literally that. We haven't been able to figure out bubbles. So we had this big, massive bubble from, call it, 2005 to about 2000, let's go 17 or 18, because we did natural gas. And then we figured out how to uh, apply all that technology and, and transition it over to oil. I still remember in 2007, 2008, drilling a horizontal well and getting oil was like the kiss of death because it would be a thousand barrels a day for the first day or two and then nothing would happen. But we eventually figured out the fracks and how to prop things open. So we have this massive bubble. Again, incinerate just a ton of capital. Oh my gosh, I mean, billions and billions of dollars down the drain. But what was interesting about that is we were actually really good. I mean, we fundamentally changed the price of oil from $100 a barrel down to, let's call it 40 or 50 during that period. I know we hit some lows, but we fundamentally changed the price of oil. We fundamentally became the provider of the net barrel of oil to the world. I mean, at least for about, I don't know, 20 minutes, we got to say, ha, 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 Saudi, we're better than you are. Came back to bite us a little, but anyway. So we have this massive bubble. We do really, really well. We fundamentally change 
oil. This is, call it, let's say we're at 2017, 2018, 2019, somewhere in there. Here's what we've done. If you look back over the last couple of decades, burned a ton of cash. That's the red problem. We lost a ton of money. I mean, we lost magnitudes of money unheard of. I mean, we, I mean, the dot-com bubble, eh, that was nothing, guys. We burned capital. It reminds me kind of, so I was drinking too much at one point, and I decided I needed to go to an AA meeting just to, to, to see. So I walked in there, and they're like, all right, this is Chuck. Hey, Chuck, tell us your story. Hi, I'm Chuck. I'm an alcoholic. I got really drunk, threw up at a party, and uh, I had a bad hangover. And they booed me out of the place. They're like, you go party away a family in a house, and then you can come back. That's, that's what energy was saying to the dot-com bubble. Come on, guys. We, we, we burned so much more capital. So we have a big, huge red problem because we did that. The second thing we did, and we're a victim of our own success on this, we have convinced the world that oil will be $60 for the rest of our lives. So remember that magic thing we were talking about earlier, that volatility, oil price could spike and we go to 100 and that's why investors let us piss away a lot of capital. We don't get that anymore. The rest, I know everybody in, okay, three years from now, is oil higher or lower than 60? Raise your hand if you think it's above 60. That's actually less than I thought. Most oil crowds are like, yeah, but, so consensus is in the energy room, I think two thirds of folks said we're gonna be higher. If you actually go out into the world, non-energy, they'd actually say lower. We truly have capped it. So we've given away volatility in the commodity. And number two, we've incinerated a lot of capital. So that's like strike one and strike two. And those are pretty big whips of all things, but that's all right, you get three strikes, right? So here we are. We're sitting there, and one of the biggest mistakes we made as an industry, we have this shale revolution, we have this great alpha story, we're providing cheap energy for the world, and what do we do? We won't tell anybody what's in frack fluid. It is confidential, it's my secret sauce, it's proprietary. Come on, guys, it's water, it's sand, it's a little bit of antibiotics in there. It's a little bit of acid, you know, the same acid that's in your Diet Coke. And then what's it called, guar, the sticky stuff? Anyway, you know why ice cream prices spiked? Because they use guar to thicken ice cream. And so with all the fracking we were doing. But anyway, so we kept secret what was in um, frack fluid. That was the big weapon that the environmentalists used against us, because at that point, you know, if you think about it, we've always had the environmentalists with their signs and Greenpeace, and they, you know, every once in a while, an idiot would kind of go out on a raft and, and hook themselves to an offshore. Well, it really didn't affect us with public perception, because we did a decent job of providing good good, clean, generally speaking, safe energy to folks, cheap energy to folks. And we, we had the PR battle, but man, that was the wedge issue those guys used and boom, we became persona non grata. I mean, people hate us. That's the weirdest thing about doing, a, doing this uh, podcast is, man, I hear from everybody, direct messages, LinkedIn, just you know, hear from them all. And it is, this is not a case of environmentalism and it's government regulated and it's just something that Washington's doing to us. This is everybody. This is a tidal wave. This is companies. This is consumers. My three kids have lived literally the greatest life of anyone on the planet. If I could come back, I would come back as one of my kids tomorrow. Charlie spent a summer in Cuba, spent a summer in the Galapagos Islands. Dad wants to go to the Galapagos Islands. That sounds great. Instead, I was working, financing it in the energy business, right? <laughs> and my three children, if you gave them the vote tomorrow, they would say, no freaking way, get rid of oil and gas. You people are evil. They truly believe this. This is not an uncommon sentiment. It is everyone out there. And 
the reason I bring that up is I always think it is one of the most worthless things when somebody comes in and says this time it's different because if you pay attention to history it's never that different right it's always the same history repeats that's not just an adage it really is true I'm here to tell you this time it's different I mean the green movement has taken hold kids hate us and let's call that maybe anyone younger than 30 they, they truly hate us. They don't appreciate what we do in terms of the standard of living they have. We've totally lost the narrative. We have institutions literally every day in a news story, there is some institution that will no longer invest in oil and gas, that will no longer invest in hydrocarbons. Last week, it was Harvard. Harvard will not invest in, in oil and gas. So it is real. It is real. And I say this not to, to I, I say this not, you know, to try to be buzzkill Chuck up here. Although, you know, what's funny is one guy on Twitter actually created a meme that said uh, the fastest things on the planet, the hummingbird, the cheetah, and Chuck Yates with a microphone running towards somebody that hates the oil and gas business. <laughs> I've, I've had some un, I've had some unpopular guests on the uh, on the podcast, but it's because I think you talk to everyone. I mean, I, I truly believe that. But I tell you this because it's very real, and it's stuff every day in your business you need to deal with and you need to be proactive about. And we, as a group, we have got to figure out some way to do a better job with the narrative. We just have to, or we're dead. I mean, we're seriously going to allow them to regulate us out of business and we're just going to produce all the oil in Russia, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela ever gets its act together, we're going to produce it there. So it, it's not just a cautionary tale. It's something we have to do. And it's something that when we try to come up with this narrative, we can't just sit around in this room and make jokes about environmentalists because we're already on the team. We have to go out and figure out ways to convince people that are in the middle, on the fence, even some folks out towards the left, that we're okay people. And I'll say this, I'm getting off topic, but it happens, ADD. I didn't take my Adderall this morning, so sorry. But one of the things I've had in terms of my communication with folks is the environmentalists actually, if you put them under the Wonder Woman lasso, or you put them under truth serum, they'll actually say that burning hydrocarbons is a good thing for the planet. I mean, your life expectancy doubles once you stop burning wood and dung and you burn hydrocarbons. Um, I always love to throw this stat out. Do you know we get more power in the United States today from burning wood than we do from solar? Say that to your environmentalist friends <laughs> next time you get a chance. But no, I say that because they'll actually acknowledge that hydrocarbons are good. I mean, one environmentalist actually told me she could not live without her suburban and being able to take her six kids around. The problem they actually have with us is because they don't trust us. They say, you guys, and you know, we get lumped all together. So if Exxon did something, and I apologize that I'm picking on Exxon, but hey, they're Exxon. Um, you know, Exxon hit climate change stuff, Valdez, Maconda, we they actually think we're bad actors. And so that in their mind justifies the world's gonna end in 10 years. We have to take all these extraordinary measures, blah, blah, blah. So I just share that with folks because it really, I don't have a good answer here. I really don't. That's why I'm telling you guys about it. We have to find a way to get our narrative across and it can't be us in this room making each other feel better. It's got to be someone that right now isn't either on the is on the fence or maybe even a moderate type environmentalist. We've got to figure out some way to win those folks over to the cause or we're gone. We're literally gone as an industry if we do that. So let me see where I left off. I wrote here, make fun of the accountants again. <laughs> but so we've got the, the red problem, we lost money. We've got the green problem and it's really real, real. 
And at this point, you're kind of, God, Chuck, this is a buzzkill. <laughs> Chicken fried steak was great, but uh, I do think there are ways out of this. And let me throw out a, a couple of examples. But first, I want to tell you one of my stories because I think this leads into it. So my favorite coach of all time was Bum Phillips, the old Houston Oilers coach. He was great. I mean, he had a quote for everything. Earl Campbell showed up one time to training camp weighing, you know, 50 pounds overweight and some press member made kind of a snide remark said, hey, coach, it doesn't look like Earl Campbell could run a mile. And Bum Phillips said, next time it's third down in a mile, I won't hand him the ball. (laughs) (laughs) We could go on on all day with Bum Phillips lines. He he was talking about how good a coach Don, Don Shula was, and he said, you know, Coach Shula is so good, he can take his and beat yours, and then he can take yours and beat his. So, anyway, I love Bum Phillips, but this was, call it, I don't know, circa 76, 77, somewhere in there. The Oilers have to win the last game of the season against Green Bay to make the playoffs. And they're flying up to, uh, to Wisconsin to go play the Packers. And it's Friday afternoon, and I don't know if y'all remember, but the uh, Oilers used to have a kicker named Tony Fritsch. He was a Hungarian soccer player. No two ways about it, just batshit crazy. I mean, Fritsch was crazy. And so he decides he's not showing up to get on the flight because he wants his contract renegotiated. And Lad Herzog, the GM, is sitting there going, oh, my God, what what am I going to do? Because this is, you know, today they're – 50 people that kick every day. You could line somebody up and, and actually have a decent NFL kicker. Back there in the 70s, nobody's kicking. So anyway, Lad Herzog's working the phones. He finds a guy who kicked in a junior college, had gone to camp three time, three straight years with the Lions, had been cut each time, but at least he had kicked in a preseason game. And so he, so he tells Coach Phillips Saturday morning, all right, we got to try out with this kicker. It's snowing in Green Bay. It's a mess. They go out to the field, and uh, Bum Phillips goes, all right, kid, show me what you got. Let's line up for an extra point. So the snap goes back. The ball goes down. The guy kicks it, shanks it to the left. Bum Phillips goes, all right, show me a 35-yard field goal. Snap goes back. Ball goes down. Guy kicks it, shanks it to the left again. Phillips says, all right, show me a 45-yard field goal. Snap goes back, ball goes down, guy kicks it, shanks the, ball, shanks the ball to the left again. Phillips walks over to the guy, slaps the guy on the rear and says, you know what, you're my guy. You're going to win me the game tomorrow. Let's do it. Walks off. Next day, the Oilers are down 12 to 10. It's the fourth quarter. There's about 57 seconds left on the clock. It is fourth down and 11. Phillips calls timeout. He kind of looks out there. It would be a 47-yard field goal. So Phillips calls timeout. He walks over and he goes, kid, I told you yesterday you are going to win me the game. Get out there and win me in the game. Slaps him on the butt. The guy goes out there. The snap goes back. The ball goes down. Dude kicks it straight through the uprights. Oilers win the game 13-12. They go to the playoffs. They're at the press conference afterwards. And they're asking this guy, hey, you've never kicked in an NFL game. That's a lot of pressure. How'd you do it? And he said, yesterday I came for a tryout. Coach Phillips just showed so much confidence in me. I felt like he was a father to me. I was not going to let that man down. And they turned to Coach Phillips and they go, well, how'd you know he was the guy? And Phillips goes, oh, hell, he's the only kicker for 500 miles. <laughs> <laughs> With that as the backdrop to my solutions of how we attract money to the industry, without trying to be too much of a buzzkill, I'll say this. And six to 12 months ago, this suggestion I actually made, I got laughed at by a lot of people. Um, Because if you're a chief investment officer of any sort of pile of money and you're younger than 45, you have no idea what inflation is. Right. I mean, you never lived through it. They they're actually academic papers written saying inflation with the monetary policy today is impossible to happen. It is impossible, won't happen. So nobody knew what it was. 
That being said, they believe today, right? We've all seen what's going on today in terms of inflation. It'll be interesting to see if this is transitory or if this is more permanent. I mean, we created the Fed in what, like 1912, something around there. And in 2007, the eight, the last economic recession, the balance sheet had ballooned up to $750 billion. That was the Fed's balance sheet. You know what it is today? It's over eight trillion today. It's up more than 10x, you know, since you know, call it in the last 15 years. Just insane. I'm kind of old school, Milton Friedman. You print that much money, at some point it's going to find its way into the supply. You know, more supply, less demand, prices go up. So I think we're going to see runaway inflation. I don't believe this is just transitory, but I'm not a monetarist, so obviously, but um no so but if we want money back in our sector how do we get it oil has historically always been the greatest inflation hedge go look any period of inflation look at oil prices very very tight correlation it makes sense right oil's denominated in dollars therefore it makes a lot of sense it's a hard physical asset i think it's actually a better hedge against inflation than these cryptocurrencies are because you can actually use it. You can power your, your car, et cetera. So I think as you think about how am I going to get capital, that's your pitch is, hey, we're the best inflation hedge on the planet. We always have been. You scared about inflation. You want here. It's always been, you know, it's always been oil. Number two has always been real estate. Two has been real estate slash gold. So you've got a good pitch there. So when you're thinking through your business plans, you're an inflation hedge. How do you give your investors um, exposure to oil price? Number two, I think the other thing that you can do today to attract capital back, and this is going to, man, this is going to sound like the biggest horse's ass, and I hate to say this, but actually run a decent business. I, nickels and dimes matter. And we had this whole industry for the longest time where we were given capital almost without any regard for returns, how we do. And what did we do? We always swung for the fence with that money, right? We ran our business like we owned a lottery ticket. I mean, I will say this. We were as high tech and as world class as anyone on the planet. I mean, drilling a horizontal well, modern frack, that's really hard. That's a lot of science. But it gave us a lottery ticket, right? If you drilled that well, proved up that shale, you made a lot of money. 3D seismic back in the late 90s, bright spots. Man, if you hit one of those, you could be rich. So we spent a lot of money and did really well if we were able to buy ourselves another lottery ticket. But the mundane stuff, land files. I mean, why do we have land files anymore? That should all be digitized. It's cheaper. It's easier. Accounting. I mean, there are people today that still use pencil ledgers to keep their books. We all know that's true, right? There's a lot of automa automation we can do. And I hate to say this for the humanity side of it, because I really don't want folks to lose their job. But business school 101 is when you're in a depressed environment, you cut costs. And how do you cut costs? You automate. And there is just a ton of automation we can do to run our businesses more effectively. Nickels and dimes actually matter. And it doesn't, it's not just back office. It is out in the field too. I hate to say this again, the humanity side of it. AI will run your pumps better than the most seasoned production engineer. It just will. And we all need to be looking at that because we're not going to have access anytime soon to outsize amounts of capital. So it's going to have to be internally generated cash flow to go do the things you want to do. And that means nickels and dimes matter. You've got to run solid businesses. And then the last thing I want to say to kind of put this into perspective that I think is lost on a lot of folks is we historically sit there and go, buy PDP at PV10, we'll drill a PUD and we'll get a 25% rate of return. And then you have an upset like's happened now and you're like, wow, I can buy PDP at PV15. That's such a good deal. And I can drill that PUD. I don't have to pay for it and make a 30% rate of return on it. Man, that's a great deal. We all say that, right? 
we all, oh, historic buying opportunity, all that. Let's think about what that actually means because investing is not an absolute business. It's a relative business. So if you buy PDP at a 15% rate of return and you drill a PUD that gets you 30, let's say we have a blended rate of return of 22.5%, that's great. That's what we're celebrating as a great deal. I mean, somebody pull out their, uh, their stock quotes on uh, their cell phone and say, what did Apple do over the last two years? I think their stock's up a little more than 22.5%. That's what you've got to remember as you're looking for capital out there is you're not competing with other energy projects and the like. You're competing with Apple, Facebook, you know, the FANG stocks, if you will. It's a, it's a relative thing. And at the end of the day, if you're sitting there saying to somebody, hey, I can get a 22.5% rate of return, one, that, that's incumbent upon me actually hitting my AFE. I haven't done that in a while. Oh, and by the way, that's also incumbent on me not having the annual non-recurring workover that always seems to pop up on the old PDP well. Oh, and by the way, if the Saudis and the Russians get into a pissing match, that all gets wiped off too. So with all of that risk, it's got to be risk adjusted better than other options folks have to attract capital. And I'll just kind of leave you with this and then I'll take questions. But this is exactly what happened in my world, in the private capital world, is back in the late 90s, when private equity in oil and gas really got started, Ken Hirsch of Natural Gas Partners, let's call him the godfather of it, the NCAP guys and Will Van Lowe were doing it as well. They walked into the state of Louisiana and the state of Louisiana pension fund or LSU's endowment. And they walked in and they said, hey, I want to talk about private equity and oil and gas. And the chief investment officer says, that sounds really neat. We have a private capital bucket. There is a person that's in charge of private capital. And Ken would go in and talk to this private capital person. And they'd say, well, you know, I'm in charge of our LBO investments, our venture capital investments, our buyout bucket, our private debt bucket. And Ken had to, enter, had to explain energy to him. This is why this is attractive. This is why you should want to invest here, et cetera. And then when we had that alpha story in the mid-2000s, at that point, LSU, Rice University, any of these other foundations, endowments, pension plans, all said, no, we have an allocation to energy. They called it real assets. So some people would throw real estate in with it, timber, but it would be 10 or 12% of the portfolio. So then when Ken Hirsch goes in, it's not, tell me about energy. Ken is talking to an energy person. It's, why should I invest in natural gas partners versus why should I invest in Kane Anderson or NCAP? It was, you know, why you guys versus somebody else? And, but the 10% was going to energy. Given the, what we did and what we kind of went through, the red problem, the green problem, and the like, those days are now over. So if you're raising money as a private equity oil and gas person, you're walking back into a private capital bucket within an, a pension fund endowment or foundation, and you're having to make the case why energy versus buyout, venture, LBOs, and those have been all on fire the last five years. So we're kind of ending on a buzzkill, and I don't mean to be a buzzkill, but I do want you guys to know what we're up against. Uh, it really is incumbent upon three things. One, we've got to do something about the narrative so the environmental wave doesn't kill us. We need to be able to talk about how good we are. Two, I do think we have an angle on the inflation hedge that we, we're a viable investment vehicle because of that. And then third, we got to run good businesses and make money. I mean, because you're walking in competing with capital of folks that own shoe stores and shoe stores that make money and the like. And so that's really what we're up against um, kind of as a backdrop. With that, I'm happy to kind of take any questions or now you can actually throw stuff at me. You've been so polite up to this point. So, Chuck, I'll say this is a 
best talk I've ever seen that didn't have PowerPoint. Do <laughs> <laughs> you have an aversion against PowerPoint, or is it just kind of a personal vendetta? Well, uh, you know, five minutes in, I was thinking of what I was going to say in minute 21. So the slides would have been hard to. I, I always found, I think, slides become a crutch. You yeah. kind of sit there and you read the slides. Right. And I didn't really have anything that I needed to graphically share with folks. Yeah, but there's a big screen. We all run in here. We see this big screen. Yeah. Where's the slide? Where's the slide? <laughs> so, Is there the last slide or the? Uh... So at, at at Digital Wildcatters, um, we've got I think eight podcasts we do. And yesterday morning we launched a new show. It's called uh, BDE, the Big Digital Energy Show. And it's Colin McClellan and I doing it. And we have built a TV studio down at the office. This is high tech. We've got multiple camera angles coming in. We've got a green screen behind us that we projected Houston, Texas on. And we did our first episode yesterday. And it was the absolute biggest cluster mess you've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, at one point we don't have audio and, uh, and it, was, uh, it was all a mess. And so the funny thing, and the reason I bring this up is if this is the desk we're sitting at, right, to, uh, to do the show, we kind of look like a news desk. Off slightly to the right is a big, huge screen like that that was showing the show, only it was about 15 second delayed because <laughs> the camera feed, the audio, we were running clips, we were doing all this stuff just to bring it all together had to be delayed 15 seconds before it hit YouTube. And so people in the comment section kept saying, how good looking is that girl off to the right? And why won't Chuck look at the camera? So, <laughs> that's the screen. Yeah, I think you're right too. I think the, the biggest problem I have with the industry is they don't promote themselves. I mean, you'll see Chevron go out there and do a nice little thing about what they're doing in the environment and stuff like that. But the industry as a whole doesn't really do that. You know, they're willing to put dollars into advertising, but they're advertising their products and not for the oil industry. And I really think that's a, a place that you don't see that we could do because the narrative is out there by the news media and, and media and educational stuff that, you know, oil is, is you know, our, the global warming is due to oil companies. And, and that issue is not really being promoted at that higher level. You don't see those national type ads be saying, well, hey, what is the oil industry, how they're helping, you know, the world and America, what we provide. What do we do for them in the positive side? You just don't see that. We're just defending ourselves. We're always on defense instead of taking offense on a major level. Everybody works as a separate company, but I don't really see. It. We see these, in, you know, like us, these different uh, technical societies that work great you know, over areas, but we don't see the major oil companies and even the smaller ones all putting together their budgets and then they can do something. The only time they put their budgets together is after Macondo, where they got to buy stuff to help protect you know, the environment, whatnot, and they're not showing that. And no, I think you're exactly right. And the other thing I'll say is on the small occurrences when they actually do it, it's just horrible. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, I was saying, talking to somebody the other day about this. I think the reason so many young people are liberal is, well, they're just liberal. I mean, that's all, you're always idealistic when you're a kid and all that sort of stuff. But the other reason is John Stewart and The Daily Show. I disagreed with John Stewart's politics on a lot of stuff. I always watched him. He was funny and he was hip and he was cool and you wanted to hang out with him. I mean, have you seen any of the ads trying to defend the energy business? It's like, I mean, you think this speech is a buzzkill? That's a snoozer, right? And yeah. so I think, I think part of that narrative has to be young, hip, funny um, to be able to win over the middle. And I think what we do is we get really defensive. We quote facts, right? We're, right. we're quoting numbers and, you know, nothing puts somebody to sleep like numbers, right? Right. And, you know, it's post, or PowerPoint presentation. Exactly. PowerPoint <laughs> presentation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're run by a bunch of engineers. I say that with love, but we're, we're run by an, a bunch of engineers. Another twist on that that I'll, that I'll tell you. So I went to, 
Chuck Yates needs a job, the podcast. Um, I'm on probably episode like 45 or 46. I've been doing it since October. I drop one every week. I went on about a seven or eight week run of everybody who came on the podcast. We talked about advocacy and we didn't say, how do you advocate for the energy business? Because I don't know that I said, how do we measure what we're doing? How do we know that we're being effective? And one of the really good conversations I had was with Mark Mills. I don't know if you've run across Mark, but Mark's Mark's as good a statistician we have. If if you ever are arguing with somebody about electric cars taking over the world, go get one of Mark's presentations because the amount of rare earth minerals that we're going to have to mine to be able to do that is a Herculean task that's never been done before in history. But anyway, so Mills and I are talking and Mills said, that's a great point because at the end of the day, ultimately we have elections. And we have opinion polls, and that's about it. And opinion polls are just notoriously bad. The other point we made, too, that I hadn't thought of, and I'm still thinking how we use it, is if you think about it, the environmental movement, its pitch is very much the collective, right? It's we have to save the world. You know, look what they're doing to us and the planet and the poor little birds and all that good stuff, right? And the defense usually comes as a more individual, you know, hey, well, a standard of living is, is better for me because I have cheaper hydrocarbons. And it's just hard to defend the individual, right? You come off as selfish, you come off, and the collective is easier, much easier. I mean, communism, I mean, just think of how bad communism has to be in actual practice to never have won an election anywhere. It's only been imposed by force, right? And the, uh, and, and the amazing part about that is it's such a good sales pitch. They will all come together from each according to ability to each according to need. Boy, that sounds great. And they're like, so I don't have a good answer for you on it, but it's really something we've got to do. And you're, you're right. We can't leave this to the majors. God, it's horrible. I think the one ad I've seen that was actually effective, and I forget who did it, maybe the API did it, but it was years ago where it was actually somebody kind of walking through their house and stuff started disappearing that was made out of petroleum products. I thought that was actually pretty effective. And when I showed it to my kids, I got some, oh, that's made of oil? Yeah, it's made of oil, but yeah, we got, we got to figure out something. And if there was ever an opportunity to, to and, and this has never happened in my lifetime, so it's kind of this golden opportunity. And if I don't figure out something to do, I'm going to be really disappointed in myself. If we ever wanted to make fun of old, rich, white people, this is our time. We've got Schumer, Pelosi, Biden. I mean, if we can't figure out a way to make fun of the old, dusty, white crowd, this is, uh, this is the time we need to do it, so. To follow up on, on Jeff's comment, too, I don't think there's any question the industry does have to get greener, right? right? I mean, young people coming up, are we good enough to stand behind the narrative yet? You know, if, you've all, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got, right? So are we there yet? The narrative is great, but in my mind, my old college advisor used to say, if things aren't turning out the way you like them, look in the mirror first, right? So I think the first thing is look in the mirror, and are we there to back up the narrative? No, I think I think that's a, I think that's a really good point. The thing I would say is is I do think we have tried some. We don't get credit for incremental incrementalization, if that's even a word. If we reduce methane emissions at a well site from here to here, you would think that's good. We don't get credit for that. I mean, the the environment. The other side is is solely focused on the elimination of hydrocarbons at their, at their far extreme end. So one, I would say, do the right thing. Don't get discouraged that we don't get credit for that because ultimately we do have to win that. I think the second thing too, and I saw a great thread on Twitter today and I don't know who did it, but he basically went to his three kids and his kids are eight, 10 and 19 or eight, 12 and 19. And he said, okay, kids, you got a bucket here full of water and it's got all sorts of holes on it. 
some big holes, some little holes. And if all the water gets out of the bucket, the table it's on will be destroyed and whatever. And, you know, he went to his youngest kid and his youngest kid just said, and he was, they were given two ways to solve it. You had a limited number of patches, which would stop the water from leaking out. And then you had a limited number of semi patches that would work for a little bit. And then, uh, and you had different size holes, large, small, all that. The youngest one was like, I'm just going to put, you know, I'm just going to put, you know, the patches and the plugs wherever I can, as soon as I can. And then next year, when I get my next allocation of them, I'll do it again. The middle child said, I'm just going to use the plugs. Um, and uh, because the patches don't, won't seem to matter. But then the oldest one actually hit, hit the nail more on the head is I'm going to use the plugs and the patches on the biggest holes. And that's going to be my best shot to get to the next year, have some water left in it. And I, I say that story because we need to do the little things like you're saying, the well site and all. But I mean, if we truly cared about global warming and CO2 emissions, the thing to do is to get China and India in a room and say, guys, stop coal. We'll finance natural gas infrastructure there. And if the United States is going to spend trillions of dollars fighting climate change, that's the best bang for your buck right there. And, you know, maybe, or, you know, are we giving away money? No, maybe there's some way we get at least some of it back over time. But that's the big one. I mean, you look at the trajectory of China and the, the number of coal plants and the number of coal plants that India's, that, that's the big killer. And, you know, until, some, until Biden addresses that, I'm not sure they're being really sincere in terms of let's stop CO2. This is one interesting point that I've thought of. I always believe when you don't hear something, the answer must be known to someone, but it hurts their cause so they don't tell you. I've always kind of been a cynic like that. So last year, how much less hydrocarbons did we burn because of the pandemic? I think we were down 8%. I mean, we burned 8% less. Did CO2 in the air measurements go down last year? And the fact we don't hear that every day on the news kind of leads me to believe that they didn't go down. And so it's, it's an interesting question. If it's truly man-made CO2 and not the natural bounds of CO2 in the air just by nature, it's kind of interesting that hasn't been addressed. And I think it's because probably the facts point the other way. You know, from the standpoint of kind of changing that that larger narrative on the environmental side, or among people who are committed to that side or believe in that side, especially young people, I think probably there's you know the time is right or the the opportunity is right for someone to be you know kind of like you said, like the John Stewart sort of subversive kind of counterculture, counter mainstream. You know, I follow. Um, ski a lot. I follow uh, a couple of pro skiers out of Canada, and one of them is the head of uh, an organization called POW, which is Protect Our Winters. You know, it's all about climate change and the current climate emergency. And every a lot of his posts are about the climate emergency. And yet, you know, he posted a photo the other day about how you know for the first time this season there's snow on the top of Whistler Mountain, like right on schedule. And uh, so I think, you know, just kind of pointing out some, or maybe there's an opportunity for somebody that's in the podcast business, you know, to be sort of, you know, more, I guess, kind of subversive like that and point some of these things out. And maybe that would resonate with, with younger people. Cause I think that there's an opportunity there for, you know, to kind of be counter mainstream counterculture that way. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and we definitely need to think of it. The one, the one idea I've, kind of had on something that might matter is if you go look at the three and a half trillion dollar infrastructure bill that's being proposed right now section 4801 little a little i whatever of the internal revenue code it's it's being amended in the infrastructure bill so that the federal gasoline tax outside of aviation gasoline is going to be raised from 18.3 cents to 
to 53.3 cents. So if you think about it, that's 35 cents a gallon. Let's call that maybe a 10% increase in, uh, in your price of gasoline. That to me seems like a hammer of some sort. And, and maybe it's not a hammer. Maybe that's a bad description of it. But that's something that hit everybody in America, middle of the road, fills their car up with gasoline. Why can't we print out in big red numbers, this amount went to the infrastructure bill. Why can't we figure out some way to highlight that, that, that makes light of it? Because that to me is something that people see every day, what, twice a week? You fill up your car twice a week and you actually see that number moving up uh, in terms of the cost. But we, you're right, we've, we've got to find some way to, to highlight this. And, and I don't think it is to avoid it. I'm not saying that at all. I think it's, we need to highlight our benefits enough so that rational people can actually get together and have a rational discussion. I mean, we believe as scientists, although some scientists will disagree with it, we believe that basically we've gone from 300 parts per million to 425 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere since 1950. We believe that's because of man-made hydrocarbons being, being burned. Um, some would, some folks, scientists actually dispute it because they claim it's within the natural boundaries of CO2 year to year, natural forces. But I think most would say we, we've got to assume that's man-made. Um, we do know that, call it a thousand parts of CO2 per million. That's a greenhouse. You know how they pump CO2 in there to make grass cut? Pretty tough to be in a greenhouse with a thousand parts per million, it's pretty uncomfortable. So we are on a trajectory of something not good happening. So we do need to take it seriously. My, my thought is if we could at least get our side on equal footing, we could potentially have a rational discussion about it and really start talking about resources and what's the best bang for our buck. I mean, there's also, you know, you're talking about how defending it can be is sort of viewed as an individual thing, but I mean, it's also a collective thing. When you think about all of the people scattered all over the world who have limited access to, you know, to reliable electricity and all of the benefit that would accrue to those people if they were to have, uh, you know, reliable power grids that they could use to you know, just run their everyday lives, start businesses um, and, and, you know, experience the same kind of uh, revolution in kind of human well-being that we have experienced over the last you know, century plus. Um, so, I mean, there, there's that as well. I mean, you start talking about inventions, contribution, yeah. demand. Exactly. Well, top what's top three? I mean, fire, wheel, hydrocarbons? Right. I mean, top five, antibiotics, vaccines? I mean, you know, it's, it's definitely up there. I have something to say, Joe Plus, I'm a geologist. And I hear all this discussion about how we're changing the environment and everything. If you look at the history of the earth, all these great civilizations flourished in what's now the Sahara Desert and in other places where in recorded time, nobody's been able to live. Those kind of changes are far and above bigger than anything we've created. So there are some natural changes going on that to me are stronger than anything else that people are talking about, but you never hear about that. No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, another way to say what you're saying that a friend told me the other day is, hey, we know in the future it's either gonna be colder or warmer, which would you prefer? Well, I prefer warmer. I mean, people die in cold weather, right? I mean, cold yeah, weather. The you, changes you know. that have gone on are substantially bigger than anything that we've created. And then they talk about us having screwed everything up. Yeah, you, there and, were tremendous civilizations that lived in the middle of what's now the Sahara Desert and prospered because they could raise crops. We did this. People didn't create that change. 
those are the natural changes that go on with climate change. Movement and you never hear that talked about. They all talk about we did all this. We did. Yeah, I mean, really all you can pin on us if we're being fair, is about 1950 on, right? So your point is exactly right. I mean, they built those pyramids way before we were burning hydrocarbons. Um, you know, the Russians for years kind of said it was that the temperature actually tracked solar flares. That that I think that was their their whole uh, science on it. it. And I should not be talking this because I do not know this, but I've heard the story is if you look back because you can bore in, you know, and the Arctic or the Antarctic, you can bore into the ice and get good readings on kind of what CO2 in the air was. If you look back, supposedly, you know, I mean, we had 10,000 parts per million, 5,000 parts per million. We had animals roaming the earth. I mean, there's no reason to think we're anything more special than any other animal out there. And, uh, and about, it was, I think it was about 80 million years ago, there was a very precipitous decline in CO2 parts per million that nobody can explain. Nobody knows why, but it's actually, you know, you actually sort of think about it and go, well, what if our natural state on the planet is 4,000 parts per million CO2, you know, and there's, there, there, there are actual scientists that are not very loud because their funding gets cut off if they say that. But at the end of the day, there, there is a group of scientists out there that said, this is just noise. The 30 giga, whatever we calculate CO2 emissions and that we put into the air is actually not causing anything within the general statistical variance that happens naturally. Yeah. Thank you. you know, to his Egypt point, just the other day I asked somebody, what was the energy source in Egypt? They didn't have wood. They didn't have coal. They didn't have oil. It was actually human because they could grow crops which got their energy from the sun, put it in people, and built it based on human machines. But they didn't have any wood or yeah. So you, you know, it's very strange thought about Egypt. Let's face Democrats are using climate change as a fear tool. I believe it's changing. The climate's always changing. They're using it as a fear tool to stay in power, control the power, control the Now, I've been chastised by various listeners of the podcast that we can't say Democrats on there because there are middle of the road. Uh, Democrats that are pro hydrocarbon. I think I found three of them. <laughs> so we'll, they we'll, do we'll, exist. They do exist. So we'll 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 take your point that uh, there's definitely part of the environmental movement that this is about government control. It's not about the environment. Uh, back to reality. Uh, what's your opinion of the future of all parties? And that's a So. First, let's go natural gas. So natural gas at $5 an M. There is so much natural gas out there that at $5 an M is profitable to drill for. I can't believe it stays there. I mean, the Delaware Basin, we used to have a line of demarcation there that if you went west of, you just run into 30 million a day gas wells. At some point, somebody goes and starts drilling that. I mean, you've got the Haynesville, you've got the Fayetteville. I mean, I got run out of Kane Anderson because the stack scoop stunk so bad. I look like a genius now, right? I mean, at $5 and with NGLs at 60, 65%. So I'm, I'm probably bearish on gas prices just because nothing solves high gas prices like high gas prices. Uh, on oil, on oil, when you look at it, I think one of the things we make a mistake is we sit there and we go, okay, we haven't drilled in the U.S. that much. The U.S. decline rate is going down. I mean, where are we? About 11 million barrels a day. We've definitely come off the peaks. 
it's not declining as fast as I thought it would, but you know, it's still on a trajectory down. I don't think that matters anymore because we're back to the good old days where it's the Saudi and what do they have in their hip pocket that truly matters. And if you look at the number of rigs that Saudi Arabia, historically, they always kind of ran about 50 rigs at any given time in the kingdom. They had a run there from 2015 to call it 19 or 14 to 18 or some, you know, five, some five or six year period where they tripled the number of rigs they were running. They were up 150. If they really had all this spare capacity, would they have been spending those dollars running all those rigs? So I think at the end of the day, the Saudis don't have as much spare capacity as they claim they have. Um, and so I'm on record because I said this at a panel at NAEP. December 2022 oil will be 97.25 and we'll hit 125 in the next three to five years. It's going to, there's going to be a commodity run there. There just has to be because we don't have it in the United States. I mean, we've hit all our good rock with as big a hammer as we're going to hit, hit it with. There's nothing left unturned there. We screwed up a bunch of spacing. We're not going to do that again, hopefully. So I think we have a commodity run. The, the real question is, can you actually see that commodity run and make money by owning oil and gas companies? So, I mean, if you're Chevron and you're buying them to get exposure to the commodity price, they, they announced eight new joint ventures over the last month for carbon reduction and various things. They're not going to be an oil and gas company in 10 years. So you're not going to get you. Yeah, you're potentially not going to get your commodity exposure there or with Exxon, et cetera. So I'm kind of on the record of I see an oil run happening. I would do it through the NYMEX, the commodities, as opposed to owning oil and gas stuff. Thanks. Appreciate y'all's time. Thanks for having me.